Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. It's, uh, it's Friday afternoon in August, and um, uh, uh, you know I'm delighted that your summer vacation plans include CSIS. Um, uh, but it's really um, uh, a testament to how important, uh, influential, and respected our, our panel today is. I'm Mike Green. I'm Senior Vice President for Asia. Uh, and Japan Chair here at CSIS, Professor at Georgetown. Um, before we get started, we always do a brief safety announcement. Um, uh, we, we have uh, about 10 four-star admirals and generals in the room, but uh, this former Boy Scout will be in charge. Uh, if there is a uh, uh, need to evacuate, and we'll, I'll let you know, but we'll head out and head around the corner to National Geographic down 17th Street, um, out the back. Um, we have simultaneous interpretation, um, and there should be headsets um, on your chair. Uh, if you have any problems, just wave and someone will come and help you. Please leave them on the chair when you're finished. If you take them home, then we will um, send the new Defense Force Rapid Deployment Force to your house to retrieve them tonight. Um, so uh, we're here um, to hear from um, uh, eight distinguished um, former flag officers from the United States and Japan who participated in this year's um, U.S.-Japan uh, Military Statesman's Forum, uh, which was established um, by uh, the Asia-Pacific Initiative and Yoichi Funabashi, who I will introduce now, who will uh, tell you um, what we have been up to the past few days. Um, Dr. Funabashi is very well known uh, in Washington and around the world. He's an award-winning journalist, columnist, and author. Um, he's written extensively on international affairs, on the US-Japan alliance, uh, geoeconomics, uh, China, uh, uh, geostrategic and geopolitical dynamics in Asia. <clears throat> um, he was um, correspondent for Asahi Shimbun here in Washington, 80 to 81, uh, excuse me, in Beijing, 80 to 81, Washington, 84 to 87, and he was the bureau chief here, 93 to 97, when I was a graduate student at SAIS, and he had a great Hay Adams Forum where he would take the Japanese-speaking um, graduate students, younger military officers, foreign service officers, and when the Prime Minister of Japan, the Foreign Minister came to Washington, he always made them sit down for breakfast with us um, in Japanese, which was wonderful. He's been a great uh, mentor and friend to many of us in, in this business, and today um, hires uh, uh, Georgetown grads of mine, and we have had probably 10 people go back and forth between his Asia-Pacific in initiative and CSIS and Georgetown. Um, uh, API was founded after 311, uh, as the Rebuild Japan Initiative Foundation did a, a really seminal report on what happened uh, with that triple tragedy and, and, and how we responded and then changed the name in 2017 to Asia Pacific Initiative because the mandate has broadened to a whole range of geopolitical and economic issues. Um, so please join me in uh, welcoming our distinguished first speaker, Yoichi Funabashi. Thank you, Mike, uh, for your generous introduction. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, on behalf of uh, the Asia-Pacific Initiative Foundation, I'd like to uh, express my deep appreciation to CSIS, uh, Dr. Joe Hamre, uh, Dr. Michael Green, and the others uh, uh, for hosting us. Uh, Asia-Pacific uh, Initiative Foundation was uh, founded uh, in uh, 2011 
after the uh, 3-11 uh, tragedy. Um, we published a report on Fukushima a nuclear uh, disaster. And in that report, uh, we emphasized the critical role which Japan's self-defense forces and the U.S. military uh, played in uh, fighting against adversity. Particularly, uh, we are very much grateful for the uh, United States dispatching more than 20,000 uh, Marines immediately uh, to the disaster area uh, for rescue uh, operation. That crisis uh, was that uh, most existential national crisis uh, for Japan in the, over the past 70 years. And it was that self-defense forces and the US military actually, which really saved Japan. That was a rude awakening uh, to us Japanese. So I thought that I think military to military dialogue and policy dialogue also uh, will be very much crucial uh, for the future of Japan and the US-Japan alliance. That's the backdrop of why uh, we uh, initiated uh, this uh, endeavor to launch the Japan-US Military Statesman Forum. The uh, core group members were, and still are, the retired admirals and generals, uh, both Japan and the United States. But over the past six years, it has expanded that scope of the participation has expanded <coughs> to include the uh, active duty officers and civilian uh, policy makers and the policy experts. And we have been very much ex uh, extraordinarily fortunate to have that uh, government officials, uh, both from the United States and Japan for this year's six uh, military states mom forum and we have uh, had very fruitful stimulating policy discussions uh, over the past two and a half days so i once again uh, very much appreciate the full members and guests of military states mom forum to come to washington to get together to exchange views and notes in a very much informal of the cuff manners uh, Mike Green has been very much extremely helpful from day one. Actually, Dr. Hamre and Dr. Green uh, were extremely instrumental to bringing about uh, this uh, enterprise. And so uh, without uh, Dr. Hamre's uh, strong uh, endorsement, this uh, would never have started. And also without uh, Dr. Green's continued support, it would never have grown to this extent. So once again, thank you very much uh, for Dr. Green and Dr. Hamre and CSIS. Thank you very much.
Doriki. Kutko Doriki was on my coach. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Yoichi. We're going to turn now to a panel discussion. Um, I'll ask a series of questions to our distinguished um, visitors, and we'll try to save some time to open it up uh, for, for your questions. There's a lot of uh, uh, experienced people in this alliance in the audience, I see, so I look forward to that. Um, let me introduce briefly um, the panel. So to my immediate right is Admiral Mike Mullen, who serves now on the boards of directors for Sprint and the Bloomberg Family Foundation and on the advisory boards of TechMet and Affinity. Uh, he retired from active duty in 2011 after having served as the 17th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the United States after 43 years of uh, service in the US Navy. To his right is General Ryoichi Oriki. Uh, he is now a special advisor to Japan's National Security Council staff. Uh, he retired from active duty in 2012 uh, after serving as the third chief of staff uh, in Japan's Joint Staff, which of course was during 3.11. And um, he had to uh, show leadership uh, for the Japanese people, uh, the Self-Defense Forces, and in our alliance. Um, and uh, earned enormous respect for that. Um, saw the Self-Defense Forces uh, rise to be the most respected institution in Japan in public uh, opinion polls. Uh, to his right is Admiral Denny Blair, well known to many of us here. Chairman of the Board and Distinguished Senior Fellow of the Sasakawa Peace Foundation USA. Admiral Blair served as Director of National Intelligence from 2009 to 2010. He had a distinguished active duty career in the U.S. Navy. Retired in 2002 after 34 years, including as Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Pacific Command. To Admiral Blair's right is um, General Shigeru Rocky Iwasaki, um, Japan Air Self-Defense Force. He's now Special Advisor to the Cabinet. He retired from active duty in 2014 after serving as the fourth chief of staff uh, of Japan's joint staff and the 31st chief of staff for the Japan Air Self-Defense Forces. Um, to his right is General Vincent Brooks, who currently serves on the board of directors of the Gary Sinise Foundation. He served as the 15th commander of the UN Command, the Combined Forces Command, and US Forces Korea uh, during a very consequential time from 2016 to 2018. And before that was, I think, the first uh, USAR PAC four-star uh, in command of U.S. Army forces in the Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific. And last but not least, um, Admiral Katsutoshi Kawano. He's now executive advisor to the Ministry of Defense. He retired from active duty in 2019 after serving as the fifth chief of staff for the Joint Staff Office from 2014 to 2019 and before that chief of staff for the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Forces. So. Um, this is a very uh, distinguished panel with a lot of experience across uh, a whole range of security challenges that have confronted our countries. I'm going to open, uh, if I could, by asking Admiral Mullen and General Oriki, who co-chair this Military Statesman's Forum, um, just to give us um, the two or three top takeaways uh, <coughs> that you have from the past three and a half days of discussion that we've had. And I'll start with you, Admiral, if I may. Thanks, Michael, and thanks for your leadership. and continued participation and support of this forum. I, I think with respect to uh, the last two and a half days, uh, the, the number one takeaway for me has been the ability to frankly explore in depth and in breadth uh, the issues that uh, with which the Alliance is challenged. Um, I can tell you this is I think the, my fourth year and each year it's gotten deeper and broader uh, and actually 
uh, they're much more frank discussion. Very rich in terms of the challenges, uh, and we'll talk about some of those, but more than anything else, there's a trust here uh, that's very real, it's very, it happens very quickly once the conference starts, uh, and it's, it's really uh, bred out of friendship, long-term relationships, and a, and a passion and a commitment to the, to the U.S.-Japanese alliance, even though that is even, you know, what we talk about is, is, is broader than just the, the alliance itself. Uh, it's particularly important to me, not just because of my long-standing relationship with Japan, but uh, at 311, uh, while I had known General Riki, who was my counterpart, uh, when I was chairman, uh, we, we went through, he, he led in that crisis like very few leaders I have seen globally over the course of my career. And so to be paired with him again in this kind of form uh, was very special. So that's the, the, the breadth and the depth, I think, is the, uh, is the first thing. Secondly is, uh, and I try to follow things geostrategically, but I had no idea that the relationship between Japan and Korea had deteriorated so badly. Uh, and we're at, uh, we're at a real low. We could argue about whether it's an all-time low. Uh, and when you, when you incorporate the overall geostrategic uh, uh, criticality of that area of the world, uh, that this particular uh, challenge, which is not new, but this particular challenge just opens the door for China to drive right through it. And that's what's going on right now to the detriment of South Korea, to the detriment of Japan, to the detriment of the alliances, uh, and to the detriment of the region. So I, I was very struck by that. Uh, the salute, we, we had some very healthy discussions with respect to it. Uh, this, to include a very clear representation on the Japanese side that that uh, that right now we're at, we're at a, in Japan we're we're at what I would call sort of Korea fatigue. Uh, we cannot let Korea fatigue and all that is associated with that uh, stop us from the st from the point of uh, achieving a solution here pretty quickly. Uh, and as was pointed out earlier today, this has uh, seen the political. Um, support for both leaders go up, which is an incentive not to solve it, uh, and yet, you know, longer term, uh, the dangers are pretty significant. So uh, that, that, that came loud and one of the points that was made is Korea needs the time right now to be able to work through this, uh, and from my standpoint, Japan needs to give them the space uh, without overreacting in what uh, has moved to what I would call sort of the emotional phase in which when we're operating in that phase it's not very likely anything good is going to come out of that. So I hope the Korean and the Japanese leadership uh, can actually pause, get to the point where they can, where they can pick up meaningful constructive uh, uh, negotiations and resolve this uh, as rapidly as possible, and I'm sure you'll hear more about Korea. Uh, the third thing, and I'm sure someone will talk about China, but the third thing, the, the takeaway is China. It's, it's all about China in that region, uh, in many ways to include our relationship and what's going on there. Uh, 
but this is more of an operational warfighting focus. We've met many years. Uh, we've all we've talked about uh, figuring out how to work together and both exercise together, which generates a much stronger deterrence against the potential outbreak of conflict, but it also puts you in a much better position if conflict should break out. And that's, uh, that's very real. My takeaway again from this week was that, that uh, there needs to be a sense of urgency on how we plan and exercise together. Uh, not just Japan uh, and the US, but also uh, our coalition partners. Uh, and, and to do that pretty quickly. We are challenged as we always are in the, this kind of war, the potential warfare uh, with information sharing. Uh, that's built on trust. We talk routinely about these gray war, these gray zone wars, cyber, electronic warfare, uh, what's going on in space, and we had pretty healthy discussions about that. Those are all incredibly complicated domains, and we've got to get to work to, to have more, uh, again, planning and exercising in, in these domains to understand uh, how we're going to operate together. Uh, my experience is that if you've done none of that and conflict breaks out, it gets a whole lot, it gets very bad before it gets better. You can mitigate a lot of that with, uh, with practice ahead of time. That also puts a lot of pressure in the region on China, which is, I think is exactly what we need to do. So those are the three things. Excellent. Thank you. Ruki-san. Hi. <laughs> speak to you in Japanese today. And we are very grateful that there are many participants here today. Regarding what we are trying to carry out, I believe that Admiral Mullen had covered them comprehensively. Therefore, there is not much that I need to add. However, when I was still on active duty with Admiral Mullen, I had uh, been blessed to work with him very much. And as was mentioned by uh, Dr. Funabashi, uh, at the time of 3-11, when we encounter a major disaster, as a top of the US military, uh, uh, Admiral Mullen had really provided us with strong support. And we have been able to develop a personal trust relationship, which I personally believe is extremely strong. However, we can say the relationship during active duty and when we are retired are somewhat different. That is, we carry out the same mission in the same environment. But once you are retired, I believe that maybe you will have different view and perceptions. And in that regard, with the use of the forum such as MSF, I think we can further the trust relationship that we had and build on it. And I had participated in MSF six times, and I have been able to feel that this uh, being strengthened. I don't know how Admiral Mullen uh, feels about me, but I fully have a total trust in him. And with such a relationship, uh, if you look at the South China Sea or activities of the Chinese armies, 
from the military perspective, I think we can share more even now. Not necessarily just sh sharing the information, but I think we can sort of uh, perceive and recognize uh, the information. And I believe that this forum has given us the opportunity to be able to sort of uh, share uh, that kind of uh, perception even before the information. Each time as I participate from the US side and from the SDF, we do have more active members uh, participating. We started uh, that we will have this forum uh, between the retired officers, and we will talk about the government policies, as well as uh, what the Japanese, as well as US active duty military uh, can uh, cooperate. And we wanted to provide a bridge between uh, these people. That was the original objective, and I believe that we have been able to accomplish that. Uh, earlier, uh, there was some reference to Japan-Korea relationship. Uh, although I will not be talking about relationship with South Korea, since from three years ago, we have uh, Admiral General John uh, participate in, in this uh, forum. In that sense, as well, we can have the objective exchange of views. I believe uh, Japan, US, ROK, although we only have one participant from ROK, I believe that participation is of extreme importance. And this year, we had an Australian guest also take part in our meeting. So although it started with US and Japan, now we do have Korea, uh, South Korea, as well as Australia, and there are four countries involved in this forum. And maybe the original intention and objective may have changed a little bit, but as uh, the situation and environment changes extremely fast, I believe we are now uh, meeting the needs of the time, and I believe that that results in an extremely important uh, result. So that is my view. Thank you. Thank you. Let me uh, turn to Admiral Blair and, and General Iwasaki. You get the hard question. <laughs> um, uh, with the militarization of these artificial islands in the South China Sea by the PLA, uh, the unifying of commands uh, on the Chinese side, uh, the increasing uh, operational tempo in the East China Sea, uh, not only operating in the First Island Chain, but now beyond the First Island Chain. This is an enormous <coughs> problem. <coughs> Some people say we have lost the South China Sea and we are losing the East China Sea. So starting with you, Admiral Blair, is, is that right? How would you characterize it? No, it's wrong. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> let, me, um, let me go a little beyond that. Um, uh, wonderful to have uh, former Secretary, former U.S. Trade Representative Carla Hills uh, here with us. Uh, she and I co-chaired uh, back around 2003 a study on the future of U.S.-China relations. and. I, a couple of conclusions that we reached back then I think are still very important. Uh, 
we, we agreed that the only country that could contain China was China. And our policy at that time was to try to give China room so that it would not contain itself, that it would join the world-based order that it, from which it had benefited so strongly up uh, to that time ever since Deng Xiaoping uh, opened it to, to the uh, world. Uh, but what I see, now see China doing is in the process, is containing itself. They are taking such aggressive action against such a wide range of uh, areas that the countries of the region uh, who are there, the countries outside the region, but nonetheless have presence and interest and uh, vital interest in the, in the area are, are really uh, banding together to oppose this uh, Chinese uh, very aggressive posture uh, uh, in, from the military point of view, from the economic point of view, from the diplomatic, uh, <coughs> diplomatic point of view. So a few small islands uh, in the southern part of the South China Sea are really inconsequential compared to a, at the strategic level, a unified uh, concern about China and banding together in order to in, in order to offset and to, uh, and, and to contain this uh, offensive by China. So I think basically China is causing a reaction now uh, which it will regret. Now in my experience, the Chinese are very practical and if something that they are trying is not working, they will try something else. And uh, there are certainly elements within China who think that, uh, oh, the more we're aggressive, the more we push, the more we demand, the more we bully, uh, we'll get a point where all of these other countries will just say, okay, you're the big guy, we'll just do what, whatever you want. I don't think that's the way it's going to turn out. I think the countries of the region and those, uh, those of us who uh, are allies of the countries in the region, who are partners and who, who support them, uh, will show China that this is a losing strategy that they are, that they are on and that, that they will say, okay, um, it was working better last time when we tried to work with the organization and try to make changes in a, in a peaceful and non-coercive, non-bullying uh, bullying manner and we will get back to that, uh, to that point. Uh, on the specific uh, issue, uh, in the South China Sea there is far more military activity by other countries, the United States, Japan, Australia, France, the UK, uh, than there was a while ago. Why? Because China has, uh, has raised its, uh, its tempo there. In the East China Sea, again, uh, Japan is building, whole, is building whole classes of ships. Japan is uh, forming new types of, new types of military operations, uh, amphibious brigades that they weren't they, that they were not uh, uh, doing, doing before in reaction to this Chinese uh, side. And the net effect of what China has done is at the tactical operational military level they have gained no advantage and at the strategic level they have begun to box themselves in and set a big disadvantage. So yeah, that's why my answer was no. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Believe that uh, Admiral Brea talked uh, quite a long time, so I sort of forgot the question. But <laughs> in view, in thinking about China, uh, we need to fully understand what country, what kind of country China is. Many times, the Chinese people say that we have 
history of 4,000 years. And the Chinese people are the type of people who look at things with a very, very long-term view. And think about it uh, with long years in mind. I believe it was in 2008, uh, General or Admiral Keating uh, was present, I believe, uh, in 2008 that he visited China. An admiral from the Chinese Navy said that uh, Chinese Navy will not be able to control the eastern side of Hawaii. Therefore, I will have to ask you to take care of that. But on the west side of Hawaii, we will take care of it. Therefore, don't worry. And I believe that Admiral Keating uh, said that he did not know what this Chinese was talking about. He was not talking about this admiral from Chinese. Uh, he was not talking about 10, 20 years, maybe 50 years and 100 years was in his mind. From 1950 to 55, uh, they actually came up with the uh, Territorial Waters Act. And this is a domestic law, not much influence outside of China. But as you know, there was a first line as well as the second line, island chain. And the first island chain, I think it was about, uh, they were thinking about 2010. And they were going to control inside of the first island chain by China. And uh, when you look at the status of, and the capability of the Navy of 1990, we did not think that they could go outside uh, of their immediate territory, but uh, they were saying that within 20 years, they will be in control of the first island chain. So uh, this island chain uh, covers uh, a very close uh, islands uh, to Japan, but uh, China's uh, PLA uh, Navy, uh, they are very confident about uh, uh, in the future they will be taking control in this area. At that time, we did not believe this uh, Chinese officer at all, but let's look at uh, uh, 2010 and on. Uh, China has made passage uh, to western side of the Pacific Ocean. And also more than 10 times every year, uh, they pass this uh, strait and then also this uh, island chain to come to near uh, Iwo Jima Island. With their behaviors like this, uh, when we think about uh, midterm to long term, we think about five years, 10 years, but uh, to Chinese mind, it's about uh, 50 years to 100 years. And so China has a, a long game in their mind. And so when we think about China, we need to remind us about that. And also when we think about uh, Chinese political system, and uh, we are a, a democratic country, of course, but when uh, China thinks about their uh, 
armed forces, uh, but in Japan, uh, for the self-defense force, we have to negotiate our budgetary needs every year uh, to the legislative branch. And uh, we make plans, and then the executive uh, branch, they will uh, execute the policy and also initiatives. And uh, so we have to take two to three years to implement the actual uh, ideas that came out of one year. But when you think about uh, Xi Jinping, uh, he can make an order and then that will happen on the next day. So that's the situation in China. And when I look at China's behavior, So are you saying I should stop? <laughs> should I stop? <laughs> so um, China is really good at where power vacuum is. That may be political, uh, military, and also economy. And they can find those vacuum points so that they can expand themselves into those. And this happens in the East China Sea, coming close to the Senkaku Islands, and typical one is the South China Sea. Without our knowledge, China has been uh, making reclamation uh, to make an artificial feature and also runaway, uh, runway and also uh, uh, anti-air uh, assets and such, and so that um, they have been able to take or seize that uh, part of the, the ocean. So we have to think about how they think about this game, and then so and also we'll be able to handle that. Uh, so uh, Dr. Green talked about uh, this question that uh, if the East China Sea and also the South China Sea are lost to China, my answer, uh, I completely agree with Admiral Blair. My, my answer is no. China, even though that uh, China has uh, made the approach to the Senkaku uh, Islands. But uh, we, of course, provide 24-7 uh, uh, patrol uh, to protect our land. So uh, we have a similar uh, capability in terms of uh, patrol ships. And uh, we, uh, we have been uh, using our uh, military or defense capability to uh, uh, to protect these uh, islands. And uh, we have seen uh, many um, invasions or approaches uh, from the China's vessels. And so, uh, uh, so China has been uh, taking rotations, which uh, kind of ships that they use to uh, keep their constant presence near the Senkaku. But uh, Japan is not backing down at all because we provide uh, continuous patrol around these, this area. Uh, in terms of the uh, South China Sea, we respect the uh, sovereignty of each country. And uh, uh, China's occupation is uh, illegal. But I do not think that uh, the, these uh, seas are not, not lost to China at all. Admiral Kawano, about that. The U.S.-Japan alliance was negotiated and signed in the middle of the Korean War. <coughs> and uh, the U.S.-ROK alliance, right as it ended, um, if the U.S. and U.N. forces had not been able to operate from Japan, I think South Korea might not be free today. 
if Korean forces didn't hold the line on the peninsula, Japan would be a much less safe and prosperous country today. The DNA of these two alliances uh, is intermingled, but um, it's complicated. Um, General Chung was reminding me today that in the middle of the Korean War, um, uh, the president at the time, Syngman Rhee, said, uh, if Japanese troops land on the peninsula to help, he'll order the Korean army to attack them instead of, instead of North Korea. Uh, so it's, 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 it's an, two deeply interdependent alliances, but with a lot of difficult, complicating history. Um, I'm not going to ask General Brooks to solve this problem because, because, because Admiral Kawano is going to solve it. Yes. <laughs> I'll save that for you, Kawano. <laughs> um, and it's, it is a political problem, not a, not a military problem, but it is a military problem in the sense that, um, you know, will you tell me, what are the consequences for us, for the defense of Japan, the defense of Korea, and the security of the United States, when our forces are not able to operate uh, trains, air intelligence, exercise, uh, between these two alliances. Maybe start with you, General Brooks. Well, thanks, uh, Michael, for the uh, privilege of being able to join such an august body here of uh, patriots who have done tremendous work for each of our countries and for this uh, cornerstone alliance. And it's a tremendous privilege to be with them. And the whole week has been like that, so it's just been, been wonderful, and this is a good continuation of it. Uh, military issues often become geopolitical issues and sometimes they can make the situation worse or they can make the situation better. And I would tell you uh, first, it's been my experience both at U.S. Army Pacific and subsequently as the Commander of the United Nations Command to be able to see and witness and uh, encounter these two critical alliances in Northeast Asia. And in many ways, as we watch the political tides ebb and flow as they are right now, uh, we find that what is continuous is the military relationship. And so while these are indeed two distinct alliances, the U.S.-Japan alliance on one hand and the U.S.-Korean alliance on the other hand, there is coordination. There is cooperation to the extent that politics will allow among all three. It's not a tri uh, triad alliance. That's not the case. And while that would be uh, militarily efficient, it probably would not be very effective politically, socially. Uh, it, it has consequences nevertheless. So as we see this current situation where the relationship is bad, and I, I think I can't describe it any other way. Bad and maybe getting worse, if we want to add additional words to it. It puts several things at risk. First, the military communications that were ongoing will have to stop for a period of time or slow down, uh, leaving a lack of coordination on very important information like, did you know that there are Chinese aircraft that are flying into the overlapped air defense identification zone that both countries share? Did you know that we're reacting to that now, or are you reacting to that now? Very simple things that we take for granted. Did you know that we have an aircraft emergency? And of course, there are international uh, aviation communications that occur, but there may need to be a recovery that occurs as well. And often we're gonna find a military element might be the first to respond, best positioned or already on patrol in that area. How do you share that information if you can't talk? And I'm not talking about it from a technical means, I'm talking from a social and a political means. So we do see big consequences
to the Cornerstone Alliance, which is U.S. and Japan, and the Lynchpin Alliance, which is the United States and Republic of Korea, when they can't cooperate. We saw exploitation of that just last week as the Russians, in a coordinated exercise with the Chinese, decided to demonstrate they have the ability to fly in international airspace and to fly to within 12 nautical miles of a contested point on the surface of the water that is a point of friction between South Korea and Japan. In other words, Russia deliberately exploited the friction between those two countries. There are significant consequences of that militarily and geopolitically. So it's, a, it's important that this is worked through and, and as has been commented, it's not something that will happen quickly or easily. This is a very deep problem and it requires the United States to understand the nature of that problem and to assist both countries in working through the painful recollections that underpin uh, this uh, problem that still is not completely resolved but was believed to have been and the great disappointment that happens on both sides. So we, we want to make sure that through conferences like this that military leaders can keep a conversation going and that we don't lose channels like the General Security of Military Information Agreement that is up for renewal between Japan and the Republic of Korea. And why that's so important to not destroy the channel even if you limit what information is being shared. It's unwise to destroy the channel of communication. And I certainly hope, uh, loving both alliances, <coughs> that uh, that will not happen, that we will not destroy, we will not see destruction of that channel of communication. Thank you. Admiral Kawano. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the self-defense force and you know, also uh, the uh, ROK's uh, forces have been having a very good relations. And John uh, uh, defense chief uh, is now in office and uh, um, he was the uh, uh, chairman of the JCS um, uh, uh, in Korea and uh, when I was uh, an active duty officer I have uh, spoken with him very much about our situation and uh, we remain uh, the very credible and also trustworthy friends uh, we still talk to each other very often however uh, the relationship between the self-defense force and also our ROK uh, forces, actually there was a very unfortunate situation that happened last year from my perspective. Uh, so uh, we were invited to attend their uh, vessel review to attend. However, we were asked to uh, take down our flag to bring our ship uh, closer to South Korea. Uh, you probably know this, but uh, all our defense and also military people, our flags are our pride. So we wanted to show our pride by uh, flying our flag and come to ROK. So I think this is a very common sense rule that we should respect to each other. So our conclusion was that uh, we should uh, we should reject the invitation to attend their military review. 
but we chose to uh, stay in Japan and not attend the review because we wanted to maintain what was left between the relationship between ROK and also Japan. And uh, also, I have to mention that uh, there was a, a radar lock-on incident uh, between ROK and also the, onto the Japanese uh, aircraft. So, based on that incident, Japan requested uh, Korea, South Korea, to make their investigation and also make corrective action so that uh, this will not repeat. But so far, But so far, uh, the reactions and also handling from ROK has been beyond our imagination. And of course, we're here that uh, we're hoping to close this, resolve this, uh, uh, this issue. So we stopped having consultations at the end of uh, January over this incident. So this is a very unfortunate uh, situation. However, we still remember and also know that uh, the collaboration between the United States, ROK, and Japan is still critical. Yes, we understand that uh, situation between ROK and also Japan uh, is very tough, but uh, this uh, 1965 agreement uh, should be the guideline uh, or guidance for us to move forward. But uh, I think that uh, there are some disruptive incidents or disruptive um, communications happen to sort of uh, move us away from the what needs to be uh, talked about and also resolved. So I really hope that uh, we can still move forward by resolving what is happening right now. Um, I just exclamation point on this particular issue in a three-day conference of the most experienced former military officers in the United States and Japan surveying the field of geopolitical, technical, operational uh, challenges to our security, uh, the Japan-Korea relationship itself occupied a lot of time and a lot of attention. It's that important. As General Brooks put it, he loves the U.S.-Japan alliance, he loves the U.S.-Korea alliance. I think a lot of people in Washington feel that way. Um, don't know what the solution is, but the consequences of getting it right are, are pretty important. Um, this is a combined arms operation. So we just had an Army-Navy team, U.S.-Japan. We're going to do Navy-Navy now. I'm going to ask Admiral Kawano a question and then Admiral Blair. So you still have operational control, Admiral. Um, and the, the question for you, Admiral Kawano, is about uh, the self-defense forces. Um, as I said, the most respected institution organization in Japan right now in polls. Um, but one of the biggest challenges, of course, is um, people, getting enough people. And I've heard that um, uh, in order to fully um, staff the defense forces, Japan will have to have the level of women participating in the military that, for example, the U.S. and Australia have. The U.S. and Australia have about 70%, I think, 17% uh, uh, of the force are, are women. And Japan's, I think, 6% or so. Um, so uh, I'm asking in part because it's rare in CSIS. In fact, we never have panels that are all men anymore. And I am certain, <laughs> I am, and I, we will probably, Yoichi and I get a lot of heat for that. Um, and I'm certain sometime before too long, we will have uh, prominent representation not only from the U.S., but also Japan at the most senior levels of, of, of military leadership from women. But, but it's, a, it's a pretty existential question actually right now for the self-defense forces, how to get more women uh, empowered, engaged, promoted, <coughs> re retaining them in the self-defense forces. And 
Um, you must have thought about that as chairman yourself. What, what, are, your, what are your views? Appropriate aged people to recruit to SDF is rather difficult, very difficult indeed. But when you look at the security environment surrounding Japan, we do need to enhance our defense capability. Therefore, we do need to uh, provide the extended defense capability, and that cannot be supported by male alone. In the future, we do need to have women's ability and women's uh, capability included in the future. Uh, Dr. Green talked about a uh, 6% figure for the present level of women participation now. Uh, when I was still in active duty, our aim was 10%. I believe that we are now moving and taking measures so that we can increase it to 10%. Very recently, uh, there were some area that was closed to women, which was submarine. Now it is open for women to take part. We do have women jet pilots. At present, the area that women cannot participate is the special uh, forces which requires a very severe environment for of uh, fighting. But in reality, in order for women to work in SDF with sense of security, we need to have something like nurseries. We need to uh, provide some kind of facilities which would be required uh, uniquely to women, unless we can provide those services, I think women will have a very hard time trying to fulfill uh, their resp responsibility. Therefore, we cannot make a you know, major leap, but we would like to uh, continue to increase the percentage for women participation. Factor in, in Japan's ability to provide capabilities in this alliance. Um, you know, turned Admiral Blair because on the U.S. side also, uh, the force is under stress. Um, budgets are limited. Uh, the Chinese military buildup is unlike anything we've seen in recent memory. Um, there's a debate among the experts about whether the U.S. forward presence in the Western Pacific, and in particular for the Navy, whether it should be, well, how much of it should be focused on high-end war fighting? And how much can we afford some of the traditional presence missions, shaping missions, showing the flag? Um, what's your take on the proper mix of capabilities and the, and the mix between that presence and zero, phase zero shaping mission and the, and the, and the actual ability to prevail in a conflict? Right, well, I, I think we must be able to, and we can walk and chew gum at the, at the same time in the, in the Western Pacific. Um, We've talked a lot about, uh, uh, you can say deterring China, or I would prefer to say making China aware that they should pursue their national objectives by uh, nonviolent methods. Uh, and that requires a, uh, uh, not only uh, a certain number of, of very, the very best platforms in the Navy and the Marine and the um, 
and the Air Force Forward Station, but also capabilities in space and cyber warfare and all that are, that are uh, make it clear that uh, if, some, if uh, military aggression goes too far uh, there, uh, it, will, it will be stopped. But uh, that's not the only thing that's important in the, uh, in the, uh, in the Pacific. And um, there, there are several, several items I would cite. Uh, number one, uh, the cooperation among the armed forces in the region on natural disasters, I think, is very important for the region. We've talked about the 311 tragedy. I am also reminded of the uh, Christmas tragedy in 2003-2004 when the tsunami uh, uh, devastated Aceh on to the east and Sri Lanka to the to the west, and the response of of military forces was really decisive in uh, saving many lives in the immediate aftermath of that, and it was a tremendous uh, operation of many, <coughs> of many countries that did that, and that's, I think, a responsibility that the armed forces owe not only to their own countries but to uh, the, the countries of the, the region. Uh, a capable peacekeeping uh, capability uh, from among the countries of Asia is also, I think, important. When I was in, in command, we deployed that in East Timor, and I think it had a, uh, a very uh, a decisive role in uh, bringing a happy outcome both for the people of Timor-Leste and, uh, and actually for the people of, uh, of in Indonesia, and that, that's an important uh, uh, activity that should include China, simply not directed to China. And then finally, I would say that even in our even in this uh, competition with China, as we, uh, the term gray zone tactics, cabbage slicing tactics, this, uh, this operation of forces below uh, full military conflict uh, level is uh, something that, uh, that the other countries of the region and the United States, which is interested in that uh, part of the region, must, uh, must present alternatives, must compete with China uh, in doing, and this takes forces which are not uh, the very, very top end. So I, I, I think American involvement in the region can be, um, uh, need, must be across the scale of the uh, capabilities of the armed forces, and I think it, uh, it, it can be with uh, smart, smart management and, uh, and resources that can be provided. Mm. We, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We're still going to need more gum, though, aren't we? Um, <laughs> and better uh, shoes. Yeah, and more shoes, better shoes. Um, uh, so go now to a, a joint Air Navy task force with uh, General Iwasaki and Admiral Mullen. I want to ask if you could say a bit more about the uh, jointness and interoperability issues between the U.S. and Japan, in particular for Iwasaki-san, uh, collective self-defense. I worked in the Pentagon 20 years ago when the defense guidelines were revised. And a lot of us thought, finally, we can do joint planning. And then we hit a wall called collective self-defense. But now Prime Minister Abe has opened up uh, that uh, issue, uh, recognizing the right of collective self-defense. Are we ready for joint planning and, and, and joint operations? Uh, and for you, Admiral, uh, the new midterm defense plan in Japan emphasizes uh, cross-domain uh, cyber space. Um, what are your thoughts on where we need to prioritize and focus in, in those areas? Let's start with General Iwasaki, if we could. This uh, collective self-defense is a very difficult area. When I was still uh, in active duty, um, we have uh, received many orders from the Prime Minister, and under the present Constitution, 
could we actually exercise the collective civil defense was a question. Under the present uh, uh, constitution, only the individual uh, self-defense uh, was something that we could exercise. That was our thought for a long time. However, as we think further, maybe part of the collective self-defense could be exercised, and that was some of the result of the research. And three years ago, we have actually introduced the Peaceful Security Act. And that under that law, uh, that is something that we could do at the most under the present constitution. Uh, so uh, compared to the overall collective self-defense, this is only part of the overall collective defense self-defense, but now we can uh, exercise some uh, self-collective uh, self-defense. Uh, if we utilize uh, present legislation, under what circumstances, to what extent uh, could we exercise such? Uh, for example, they may have to be considered individually. In regarding the cyber domain, what kind of uh, cooperation can we have between Japan and US? Regarding space, what can we do together? Or maybe possibly in the Strait of Hormones, what can we do together? So individual cases must be considered to see uh, to what extent self-defense forces could be utilized. And those decisions will have to be made on individual cases. Even up until now, the use of uh, self-defense force will change from what it used to be in the past. That I, I have uh, operated with, uh, and then strategically been with the self-defense force. Uh, I've always been impressed with the capability. Uh, we have some history that, uh, in the self-defense force days, pr prior to collective defense, uh, th those operations actually you know went pretty well. Uh, and, and in particular, what I would call the Navy to Navy, the maritime operations, and in the maritime domain. So, and, and that's a significant part of the challenge right now, just because of the theater laydown itself. So I'm actually hopeful that if we could both now collectively plan and exercise, uh, and I'm specifically, I believe we need a, uh, we need a, a permanent uh, joint, ta joint and combined task force in the region, which we could use regularly to, uh, to test these things, and interoperability is always challenging, no matter you know, when you start, and wringing that out early, uh, even in quote unquote the conventional days, it just takes time, it takes a lot of effort uh, to do that, and you can't, you, you can't theoretically get at that, you have to practice regularly. The level of professionalism, and I watched this uh, in the 311 response, the, the, the level of professionalism inside, professionalism inside both of our forces is extraordinary. So I think we could solve that relatively quickly. Uh, when you specifically ask about the, the gray zone pieces, uh, the space piece, the cyber piece, we've started to talk about the electronic warfare uh, piece as well. Uh, those are all, uh, to, in, in terms of operating together, they're very new. The thing that drives that particularly in cyber, is the speed. You don't have a lot of time to adjust. Um, 
there's the serious issue of, of defense and offense, and constitutionally right now, the, the, uh, you know, the, the Japanese constitution will not allow offensive operations. Um, uh, we in the U.S. have very recently, uh, from my perspective, I think with this administration, got to a point where we're, we're much more open about uh, either using it or certainly planning to use uh, offensive operations in the cyber world, which I think we need to do. I think, we, again, we've given certainly the Russians and the Chinese, uh, the Iranians uh, and the North Koreans far too much runway in the cyber world. Uh, and uh, and they need to be they, they need to be pushed back pretty hard quite frankly so that's all right there I think we know what we need to do but we're just going to have to practice together and there are it, it isn't just the constitutional it, it, it isn't just the constitutional uh, uh, requirements in Japan with respect to something like cyber going on offense uh, I think what Americans need to to uh, think about is the history in this country uh, with an understanding of that history uh, over the last 70 years. It's, a, it's topical right now obviously in the South Korean uh, Japanese uh, uh, challenges that are ongoing but, but to make sure we have an understanding of that as we look to how much we can actually get done, how quickly we can actually move uh, and that creates additional complexity uh, that I think act, if we consider that there's likely to be a much more rapid solution to these very very challenging problems. Um, so we know I talked about information sharing earlier uh, we've networked before we've shared information before uh, so the basics I think uh, are there it's a question of now can we can we given the threat and it's considerable and it's growing uh, and we need to work together and it's not just the two of us or the three of us uh, there are others that you can't do that on paper you've got to actually <coughs> practice it and I think that's what we got to do when you uh, uh, mentioned a standing joint task force are you thinking bilateral US Japan or maybe maybe bigger or? Uh, I, I, my my view of this this needs to be joint combined uh, certainly a, there's a bilateral piece as well but we've just been in too many coalition operations in the last, I mean, since, since the 90s that I can count, uh, where that just becomes, uh, that, that almost becomes a mandate. Uh, and critical to success, because all these things in the end have to end politically. And the political capital that a country puts into a coalition with its forces uh, is considerable. Uh, and without that, uh, I, I also believe, I mean, you don't have the political resolve to ch achieve what you're trying to achieve. So I, I think it's much more, in the long run, it's, uh, and hopefully not so long, but the long run, it's m much, much more beyond just the bilateral relationship between us and Japan. I think it's got to be a lot of other countries as well. Um, this is a very purple stage. Um, these uh, distinguished officers have all had the, the, some of the most, in, in many cases, the most important joint jobs you can have in either country. But I'm going to be a little parochial at the end and end with the Army <coughs> and ask General Brooks and General Oriki about the role of ground forces in this competition we face with China, both the defense of the island chain but also shaping uh, the environment. Um, people often think of the Pacific as a Navy air theater in Washington. Uh, that's 
that's not the whole picture at all. So, General Brooks, why don't you start us off? Um, how do we think about ground forces, U.S. and Japan, in, in, in what we're facing? Well, well, thanks for that. And certainly that was a focus of my attention as the commander of U.S. Army Pacific, just as it was when I was the commander of U.S. Army Central in the uh, Middle East and Central Asia. Uh, the space is more concentrated in the Middle East and Central Asia, but it requires a joint approach to get the job done. Uh, I found that to be the case certainly as well in the Pacific, if not more so. And I'll just highlight a couple of reasons why that it's critically important that we think about this in a joint approach. First, that's, that's a, uh, a, a decided advantage for the U.S. and any of its allies is to operate in a joint context. That may change over time, and we find that uh, potential adversaries, like the People's Liberation Army, are pursuing jointness in their own way, but they're studying our model because it's a decided advantage at the present time. And so we need to do it because that's how we operate. Secondly, when we think about the interdependencies that happen among the various services and their capabilities, uh, we'd be foolish to go without any one of them. And so whether it's recognizing the way the geographic space is in these island chains, as you call them, the part of the Pacific we're describing is all about archipelagos, from the Aleutians all the way down to Indonesia. And they are pieces of ground that are separated by water. Now, that's how I look at it as a landsman, but that's also how the people who live on it look at it, because we're talking about populations here. We also find that on the landmass, Many of the countries are dominated militarily by their armies. And having a relationship with those continental leaders is critically important if we want to think about access, basing, overflight, a longer term relationship that creates stability in the region that is deterrent in nature. Uh, you ought to have a relationship if you want to have that. So land forces play a very, very important role in that. And that's both the US and the Japanese, and I would say uh, others in the, in the region as well as we knitted together a tighter community of armies. Lastly, I'll say that uh, certainly we see an emergence of some adaptations of forms of war. And uh, for example, the multi-domain operations concept is really about land forces being able to have an impact on the domains that would normally be dominated by other services. So land forces can impact air, sea, space, and cyber if they're positioned in the right places with the right types of systems and are integrated into a joint operating concept by whatever commander you have, a standing joint force commander, a combatant commander, an alliance commander, they have to be integrated in. And so whether it's long range fires or air defense systems or electronic warfare capabilities or landing different communications, all these things are dependent upon a connection to land forces to enable the joint fight. So it might well be, and we certainly saw this when I was uh, at, at U.S. Army Pacific within uh, what was then called PACOM, now Indo-Pacific Command, that we did better in our exercises when we were thinking that way. How could I as a landsman, a land component commander, enable the operations of a maritime component commander or an air component commander? How could we all fuse the capabilities that we had in space and to protect them at the same time in a collective way? And we see these concepts now resident in the national strategy for the Indo-Pacific as released by the U.S. Department of Defense. And we see it also in the defense planning guidelines from, uh, from, uh, from Japan as well. So recognition that this is a requirement 
for the way we're going to operate for the rest of the century calls for a much closer integration than we can see. Now, let me just make one last comment on our previous question. I'm neither a, a, from, a, from the Navy uh, nor am I a woman, but I am from the first class that included women at the U.S. Military Academy, and trust me, you'll be glad you did it when you make the change. Okay, you ought to do it, do it soon, don't fight it, take advantage of it, it will make you much better. And I look forward to seeing the future highly improved uh, Japan self-defense forces that have a 17% or 30% composition of women. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> 私のは今のお話の続きの部分とそれからホイップの部分と分けてお話ししたいと思っていずれにしても陸軍とか海兵隊というのは地味なんです。アーミーやロソマリンズ、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、And when we look at this、uh, security uh, environment, uh, Marines and also air,、uh, sea, and also ground, and then we are now including cyber and space. And、uh, when we look at the、uh, latest technology, 5G, and also AI, so those are adding more complex aspects to what security means. So that means we cannot just conclude our mission just within the land, and we cannot just uh, uh, silo our operations or missions within our、uh, limits. We always have to integrate to have joint forces so that we can have the most effective、uh, war fighting or the、uh, strategy. So I think this is the, what joint. Uh, planning and also joint、uh, operations mean to us. And、uh, what is the heart of this、uh, joint work?、Uh, we have to think about command and control. This is the core and the heart of our joint operation and also joint、uh, collaboration. So, this is、uh, what it means to us as control. And uh, from control, uh, then uh, we have to spread out、uh, some of the works to our units and also smaller groups so that、uh, they can work on、uh, their tasks. So, in this era, all the aspects are、uh, interdependent, and then not only war fighting, but at the same time,、uh, defense and also deterrence. We should think about from the system and also what kind of concept, concept we have to have for our joint、uh, capabilities. And not only Japan and the United States, and also、uh, ASEAN uh, included. And uh, when I think about、uh, this region uh, from uh, 
different perspective. I think Japan has three pillars to look at uh, in the in the in the Pacific. So, for example, on freedom of navigation and also prosperity in terms of the economic aspect. And uh, uh, Indian Ocean is, of course, uh, connected to the uh, Middle East. So uh, we're not only talking about economic activities in the Asian, uh, Asian region, but we're looking at the global scale and also the stability and also a prosperity. What's asked of us, meaning the uh, Japan self-defense, is that uh, we should contribute to the global uh, prosperity in so many different ways, including freedom of navigation and also economic uh, economy and also security. So what ha we have been working on as the Japan Self-Defense Force is that we have been working together with uh, Southeast Asian countries. We have uh, dispatched uh, engineers and also healthcare professionals so that uh, those countries can learn and also grow their expertise in those fields. And of course, that uh, we're not just dispatching people uh, for a sh short period of time, but we are sending them so that uh, they can assimilate it or maybe include it in their cultures too. And of course, that the US-Japan alliance is the core, but uh, for example, uh, Australia, the Philippines, should be included in our perspective. And also, we should look at the multilateral collaboration surrounding us. So this is the stability and also securing peace in the region. And also, last year, we saw some uh, special activities. Uh, we sent a small unit to India for training. So this is a very encouraging sign that uh, we have been very active to communicate with uh, those uh, Southeastern, uh, Southeast uh, Asian countries. And also the relationship uh, with the U.S. Army. Uh, we have done some joint exercises uh, two weeks ago or so, I was asked to give a keynote speech in Tokyo. At that time, uh, HADR, uh, which is a, a disaster recovery and also human uh, humanitarian assistance uh, in a mega city. So this was uh, this keynote speech was actually held by a, a huge uh, think tank and also uh, other organizations in Japan. Uh, many countries came and also many NGOs came to hear my speech. So uh, those uh, this type of uh, uh, humanitarian assistance and also re uh, disaster recovery are very much interested by different so many different organizations and also they come together uh, in that same mission. And so I really would like to see the United States and also Japan to uh, leverage on that because there is that uh, sense of mission uh, already growing. Yeah, I just asked the. The uh, Mike, if I could make a comment about our army, and that is not a natural question. Uh, you might think, uh, but it was a few years ago, actually when I was running our Navy, that I publicly made a speech uh, in the middle of war, 
this was in the middle of war in Iraq, that um, I was completely convinced. And this goes to Vince's comment about the criticality of armies globally <coughs> and the upside and the downside of uh, army presence. Um, but I made a speech saying that uh, contrary to my training as a young naval officer, particularly in the budget world, uh, what I realized was our army in the United States, my army when I became chairman, was the center of gravity of our military. I believed it then, I believe it now. Um, I, I also, and this is just an antidote uh, again about, uh, about how peoples around the world feel about armies. When we had that tragic earthquake in Haiti, um, and uh, we were, everybody was moving as many forces as possible to try to help, we sent a brigade, a ready brigade of the 82nd Airborne down to Haiti to help. And I visited them a few days later, and in my interaction with the Haitian people, uh, I was stunned at the numbers who thought we were going to invade them, or had invaded them. And it was a very serious concern and discussion. And I could not relieve that concern, literally, until all the 82nd Airborne soldiers were off the island. Um, and that was, a, that was a message to me, again, about the impact of armies, both uh, again, the upside and the downside, and the fears and concerns that they, that, that they raise, uh, again, for both uh, good and for uh, concern. Um, and then lastly, in this world that we are now in of remote weapons, uh, unmanned capability, the kind of precision and lethality we see in these weapons, when we're in combat, one of the things, and this isn't a perfect solution, but one of the things I learned is I really need people on the ground. I really want to, to have a level of knowledge about the destruction that I am about, uh, in particular in a world where as precise and as lethal as these weapons are, there is oftentimes collateral damage. Uh, so. Uh, I value, back to what I said earlier about my army being the center of gravity of our military, I value that more than I ever thought I would, and they bring extraordinary capability. However you would distribute them, whatever impact they have in countries around the world, we cannot do this without them. Even in a theater that is oftentimes characterized as, an, as a Navy and an Air Force theater. Thank you. Um, if I were to try to wrap a ribbon around uh, what we've been discussing, number one, we need the Army. <laughs> That's for Thank sure. You. Um, but the, the theme would be jointness, and um, not just saying jointness as a kind of lip service, um, but talking about it because um, the PLA is rapidly increasing capability. North Korea is expanding its nuclear arsenal. Um, our budgets aren't going up at the same rate as the Chinese, and, and jointness is, is capability. It is a multiplier, and not just the Western Japan, but that's why the relationship with Korea matters. That's why, as Oriki-san said, India, Australia, others matter. I think that 
just as an observer and participant the past few days, that, that's, a, that's a mega theme. <laughs> Uh, that, that looking at the problems, whether it's new domains like space and cyber, uh, increasing in defense spending and capabilities by China, the answer very often is improving our jointness and our ability to work together, especially US-Japan, but networking this alliance with allies and partners elsewhere. Let's uh, take questions from the audience. We have microphones. If you could identify yourself and if you want to <coughs> pick someone to ask, go ahead. If not, I'll toss it to someone on the panel and then anyone can weigh, can weigh in. Um, Let's get uh, uh, way in the back there. Well, thank you very much for wonderful panel, uh, uh, Dr. Funabashi and Mike. And also, uh, uh, thank you for the wonderful panelists on the stage. My name is Satohiro Akimoro. I'm a president of Sasagawa Peace Foundation USA. My question is with regard to uh, uh, Korea-Japan relationship, particularly uh, to the possible role that the United States can play. And the question is uh, addressed to uh, uh, Admiral uh, Mullen and Admiral Blair. Uh, I think most people in Japan agree that the uh, uh, um, Korea-Japan relationship is uh, critically important for uh, uh, Korea-Japan, uh, stability of the region, and also United States. Number two, that uh, uh, it's a serious state that uh, we need to do something. As Admiral Kawano said, that, that there's a, a fundamental gap between the two countries. And number three, that uh, uh, if we don't do anything, a third uh, a country will take advantage of it. Having said that, uh, uh, it looks like uh, Korea and Japan have demonstrated that, that they can't solve this on their own. Is there, uh, did you discuss any possible role for the United States to uh, uh, you know, better the relationship between Korea and Japan? Uh, Japanese uh, uh, have been, I think, uh, uh, frustrated to the extent that, that they've been uh, um, basically asking Americans for some time to uh, play a role, but the uh, uh, situation has come to the point that uh, we uh, witnessed today. So is there any uh, a role that the uh, United States can play? Uh, did you discuss the uh, uh, possibility of the United States uh, 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 play any mediation role? Thank you very much. Sure. I, I, I think uh, fundamentally this is a situation that Koreans and Japanese have to resolve. Um, uh, we are, we have a, an incredibly strong relationship with both countries, so uh, I have, uh, I mean I haven't obviously been involved, but I, I guess I'm comfortable enough to say that, that this is not out there by itself, that we are paying a lot of attention to it, and that there are individuals involved, uh, because I think we all recognize how serious this is and the direction, the direction that it's heading. Uh, is, uh, is, is very dangerous. So, um, but in the end, uh, I, I think uh, probably, and I'm not on the inside, it, I would work very hard to support the solution that the, independently the Koreans and the Japanese need to figure out. Uh, and is there, there are ways to do that um, and I'm not, I'm not involved enough to know how much there is, but there certainly, are, there certainly is activity that we're very much aware of uh, from that standpoint. So it's not out there by itself. Right, we, uh, we discussed some of the principles that uh, should guide American participation, or the American role in, in, in trying to help two of our closest allies in the theater. I think 
Uh, one principle is uh, the United States should uh, distinguish carefully between what should be done publicly and what should be done privately. The issues between Korea and Japan have a high historical, emotional, political, social context and an outside country comments and prescribes in those areas at its peril and I don't think uh, we should. On the other hand, on a private basis, I think the United States, and we discussed this in our group, should provide a sense of urgency for working on the problem, and in many cases, a venue and a sympathetic third party to help solutions uh, be, be achieved by both uh, countries. I think uh, as far as our, our public role, again, that sense of urgency is important to talk about uh, publicly. The sense of the importance issue to the United States should be talked about publicly and we should, we should em emphasize it. And when uh, one country or the other uh, takes an action that is, uh, really affects the long-term repair of relations between the countries, I think we should uh, call it out. I agree completely with uh, General Brooks that, uh, that eliminating existing channels of military information exchange between Japan and Korea is a terrible mistake. Of course the information that goes on that channel can be regulated and would be regulated based on a whole bunch of factors, but we should be we're publicly against that. We don't think the Republic of Korea should terminate that agreement. And, uh, and so um, that uh, those are the principles that we that we discussed, uh, and that's uh, the role that I think the United States uh, can play. I think finally I would say that there is an overall feeling among us Americans who have service and friendships with Koreans and with uh, Japanese that this this thing just is not going to lead to a final and total rupture. There is just too much too much that the three that the three vibrant free market democracies in the most important part of the world share for that not to eventually over time overcome these very difficult historical problems which they face. Really, uh, try to imp may improve the situation, but I think that will not uh, solve the issue from the root. Uh, we just heard from Admiral Kamano, and, and what I heard from Admiral Mullen and Admiral Blair was um, that the U.S. has a role to play, um, but it's not to broker this, um, uh, which ultimately will have to be done by Japan and Korea. At CSIS, every few years we survey uh, hundreds and hundreds of foreign policy experts in Asia about their uh, vision for the future of the region, 10 countries. Um, the countries that are most closely aligned, almost indistinguishable about what kind of Indo-Pacific they want with democratic rule of law, with a strong American presence, the two countries that, where the experts are most closely aligned uh, is Japan and Korea even more so than Australia. I'm sorry, Michael. <laughs> Although that may say more about Australian foreign policy elites answering the survey than the Australian people. But um, it's remarkable. It's almost identical to the responses from Japan and Korea. 
about the role of the United States, about the democratic values, about the kind of economies they want to see, the kind of institutions they want to see, almost identical, the, the Japanese and Korean foreign policy experts, about where they'd like this region to go and the role of the US. So to Admiral Blair's point, um, you know, there is an underlying set of values, but also interests that really, hopefully, will get us past this. Um, yeah, let's, let's keep going, and uh, yes, we have to, uh, I, we can always count on Mainichi Shimbun to ask a, cu a question that makes me glad I'm not in government now. Yosun Furumoto, Mainichi newspaper's reporter. I want to ask a question about President Trump, very simply. Is President Trump strengthening or weakening U.S.-Japan alliance? To anyone who wants to make you, a comment, you don't want to Thank ask you. about INF or Iran <laughs> or something easy. <laughs> That's an air ball. I, anyone can go for it who wants to. No, I mean, I, I'll, I mean, I'll take a crack at that. I, I a couple things from this week. We we heard from a number of administration officials, and what I was what I was struck by was the continuity of policy in terms of lots of things that are going on. Uh, specifically, our national security strategy, our national defense strategy, the, the, the guidelines that just came out of Japan recently, those documents playing off each other, and I think that has uh, um, strengthened the relationship, put us in a position to strengthen the relationship. Um, uh, and, and then I would go back uh, even, even before what I said earlier in terms of, of generally continuity, not perfect continuity from one administration to another, but that values the relationship. I think very publicly uh, there probably hasn't been a leader in the world that has worked harder on a relationship with our president than, than uh, Prime Minister Abe. Uh, at two great success for the alliance specifically and then for the region obviously because of the criticality uh, of that alliance. Uh, it is, it's, it's almost easier now to criticize because the vulnerabilities that have always been there, China being one, the challenges we're having right now uh, with respect to the relations uh, uh, between South Korea and Japan, uh, uh, what's going on in North Korea, it's a lot of it's more public than it's ever been, so it's easier to see. Um, uh, so I mean, uh, overall, I've, I've, I'm taken back by uh, the continued strength of the alliance in an evolving time. So I, I would, on balance, say it certainly is as strong uh, or stronger, you know, or getting stronger over time. All that being said, withdrawing from TPP, I think, was a very big, very big mistake. Uh, and. Um, and that uh, one that we are scrambling to uh, to re recover from, and so it's been. Um, uh, I, I think Admiral Mullen correctly uh, correctly characterized some of the positive aspects, but that that one big uh, own goal, that one big foot shot, I think was a was a mistake uh, by this administra administration. Whatever one thinks of the possibility of treaty passage, uh, had had it been passed. There, there are a lot of ranchers and farmers who would agree with you. It's not just geopolitical. Nichibe Ampojo, I agree. 
One knows the uh, details of the uh, treaty, but in, in summary, uh, if Japan is attacked, then uh, the United States come, come to rescue. However, uh, in, in return, uh, Japan offers the uh, uh, military facilities to the United States, so this is balanced. S when you boils it down, uh, so operation part is still unfair or imbalanced. In my personal opinion, this operation domain uh, should be reviewed so that the balance should be a little bit more equal. For that, uh, peace, uh, peace uh, legislation uh, was uh, enacted so that uh, uh, we can uh, give support to protect the United States uh, ships and also aircrafts, uh, even at peacetime. So uh, what uh, President Trump said about the U.S.-Japan alliance is that he was very sharp to point that out, and then so I received that message personally. TVs. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think Sony's made TVs Sony since the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, Japan native, U.S. citizen. Um, I heard through the grapevine that the uh, Japan's military budget is 1% of uh, Japan's GDP. Uh, I, feel, I feel that their hands, the military hands, are tied in the back for some reason. Um, uh, that's the way I feel anyway, but how do you feel about that, increasing to maybe up to 2% of GDP? looking at me, so now I have to answer that question. Uh, yes, that 1% uh, that you mentioned, it is not legally bound, and it has been just a political trend and also inertia. And also, we have to think about that uh, the growth itself of the GDP, and so that means even though it may be remaining at uh, one percent, the GDP itself has been growing. So, meaning that the uh, defense uh, budget is growing as well, and uh, uh, we cannot really achieve two percent, uh, whatever the calculation that we may want to take. And uh, so, we can pro uh, probably have one point three percent. And then also, it depends on what kind of calculation that you're using. But I do understand your um, point. And so the Japan renewed uh, its uh, midterm defense force buildup program. And so within that, we now have included different types of activities or new uh, activities. So we should not think about what percentage point that we should uh, aim for in terms of the defense budget. But we should look at what kind of capacities and also what we need to do as defense. So that's my understanding. 
And so we can just throw out some numbers, 2% or whatever it is. Uh, but it doesn't, 2% doesn't really give us any justification. That would be the sound budget point that we should have. So I think that uh, this comes from uh, President Trump's uh, comment to the NATO that uh, every country should uh, contribute by 2% of their uh, own GDP. Uh, but this doesn't really give us a justification uh, to have that kind of discussion. And if we would like to achieve 2% over um, 10 years, that means we should increase the actual budget by 7% uh, or 8% every year to actually uh, achieve 2% of Japan's GDP. So when we look at the actual economic status of Japan, uh, in increasing the Japan's budget, uh, defense budgetary by 7% to 8% every year is very difficult. So we should not just look at 1% of the Japan's uh, Japanese GDP, but we should look at what we truly need to do in defense. And so that's why uh, we, I was uh, trying to explain that to the, uh, uh, the Treasury uh, ministry, uh, ministry in Japan. A crisis shrinking their GDP. <laughs> so be careful what you wish for. Um, I like the way that Admiral Mullen, this is how a joint and combined task force works. Admiral Mullen saw the difficult question and immediately designated General Oriki, who jumped right in without any hesitation. That's, that's the right vision for our alliance. Yes, sir. Let me just add, if I can just Yo, add please, on, yeah, to, sorry. on to that as well. I, I think uh, one of the important points here is, as we're talking about numbers, and I certainly agree with General Oriki that we ought to be careful about random numbers, but these are not new numbers. We've been trying to seek all of our alliances to uh, commit to a level of effort that is reflected by a 2% baseline. So they, that's the objective, to get everyone spending at about that amount. But there's a deeper underlying question that's behind that, and that is, what is a reasonable amount of support to U.S. forces? What is a reasonable amount of commitment to self-defense through every aspect of that? And I, I think we've still got a lot of work to do uh, globally, especially beginning with the alliances, to understand what that means. And we had some discussion about that during the, uh, the, the forum this week on, are we counting everything properly? Are, are, we, are we including everything that is being done in basing, in access, in tariffs, in trade, all, everything? Are we really including it all in a way that's comprehensive enough to be able to see what the true level of effort is? And I would submit to you that uh, having carried this message around the world to a number of militaries for a number of years, uh, we don't include everything that ought to be included. And so we've got work to do to refine our understanding of what that fair uh, commitment, that fair load really is. In some cases, we miss uh, things that have been very beneficial to the United States. Uh, we just don't acknowledge them. We walk right past them because we're looking for a specific thing, which is a percent of spending on procurement or what have you. And that's not adequate. So we need to be, I think, much more insightful in this part of the century and beyond as we, in my view, refresh the alliance structures that are so important to stability and prosperity in the world, we've got to look at it in a more comprehensive way than we have in the past. That general sounds like a good mission for a national security think tank. Yes, maybe uh, CISIS would take yeah. that. Please, yeah. In the middle there, Josh. Yeah. I'm a Peter Humphrey, an intel analyst and a former diplomat. Uh, we mentioned radar. Uh, equally important, or perhaps even more important, is tracking submarine coming out of North Korea or Bohai Bay. And passing that contact 
as it goes along the coast of Korea onto Japan. Um, I want to be assured that that capability is bulletproof, that no amounts of political exigencies are going to disturb that, that that is permanent infrastructure. Can the mantle, the mantle here assure us that that kind of tactical uh, effort is in fact uh, a sacred? No, we're not going to answer that question in tactical <laughs> detail. The overall assurance that the United States and the other countries uh, that we operate with can handle the undersea domain, I can tell you, is, is good. But I'm not, I'm not going to go into detail with you. Admiral, is it right to, um, to, to think that, um, that, we, we, that that undersea domain is, our, is one of our real advantages going forward, particularly when you um, look not only at U.S. Navy capabilities, but the Maritime Self-Defense Forces, well, Australian Navy, Indian, and so forth? Yes. I mean, this is an extremely, uh, extremely complex and difficult uh, part of uh, the, the Navy operating space, which, uh, in which equipment is a part of the, uh, a part of the equation. Uh, the Chinese equipment has not, um, has, has not made, uh, is not as advanced as what uh, the, the other countries have. But even more than that, it is the long years of practice and training that go, in, go into that. And, and it's know, not subjected to political goal. whims? No. No, it's actually what I said earlier in just this week, what I've seen hearing from this administration and then knowing what's existed in administrations before, uh, all of that continues to be in place and I would argue mostly undisturbed. It's a good thing about politics. If you can't see it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, I see a hand way back there. Thanks. Hi, my name is Pat Host. I'm a reporter with Jane's. I have a friend. Uh, I have a uh, question for our Japanese friends. So Japan wants to uh, acquire a new fighter jet. I was wondering what you think Japan should prioritize in capabilities for this new aircraft, and perhaps how you think the uh, acquisition should be procured. Thank you. Iwasaki-san, you're the only you're the only Air Force guy up here. When we think about the uh, fighter aircraft in Japan, we do not have a large fleet at all. When I count the number of uh, aircraft, then that means less than 400. And uh, the mission that we receive is uh, meaning that protecting the air. Uh, for example, China, Russia uh, can be uh, threatening uh, so that we have to protect uh, our uh, territory. Um, to uh, counter them. And so uh, when we think about the threats uh, in the current situation, we have to expand our capacity, that's for sure. So I think that it's, it is more effective to have one type of aircraft 
rather than uh, various types of aircrafts uh, for cost benefits and also efficiency. If we have one type of aircraft and uh, uh, we have an issue because if that type of aircraft have an issue with the uh, wings, then we have to ground all the aircraft of that same type. And uh, when we have a scramble a situation, then we have to be able to mobilize our aircraft as well. And so I think that uh, we should not rely on just one type of aircraft, but maybe we have, we have to have uh, various types, maybe up to three types of aircraft. And uh, we, even if we acquire different types of aircraft, we would not be, um, we would not have the expertise to uh, operate them efficiently. So we should uh, seek uh, technical support as well. Uh, so that's why we have decided that uh, we will maintain to hold uh, three types of aircraft uh, into the future as well. And uh, when we talk about uh, FX, uh, this is an F2 type of uh, uh, aircraft. Uh, so this was uh, called uh, FSX uh, in the past, uh, back in 1987. So FSX uh, came in. This is based on F6, F16. <coughs> And this was redesigned for the uh, uh, advanced type. When we think about um, uh, fighter jets, we used to have the criteria or categories as uh, FI and also FS. Uh, so FS means fighter support, and also FI means uh, uh, interception. And so uh, S means support. Uh, we used to have F1 by uh, Mitsubishi or MHI. And so this is going to be uh, uh, retired. Uh, so uh, Japan is uh, planning to uh, update the uh, design of F-16 and also produce them in Japan. This is agreed upon between Japan and the United States. Looking toward 2030, so there may be uh, some types of aircraft uh, retiring. Uh, but we just started our um, renewed uh, design of F-16, and also I think that uh, it will take about 10 years to complete that program. And so we have been working together with the United States to complete it. And last year, we renewed our national defense program guidelines and also a midterm uh, defense force build-up program. Within those uh, literature, Uh, for our next generation FX, Japan should take the primary uh, role to actually produce and also maintain those uh, aircraft. Uh, because uh, we would uh, be able to customize uh, those aircraft for our uh, unique needs. Uh, MRJ is produced by uh, MHI. Now it's called SpaceJet. Uh, MHI produced this uh, space jets domestically. 
There are some uh, misunderstanding that uh, these are produced uh, internationally, but this is uh, domestic produce. Uh, so uh, MHI has worked with 18 companies to produce these. And so for some parts, for example, wings and such were uh, technically um, supported by other uh, com companies. So what we are trying to do right now is that uh, how and also what kind of aircraft that we can design and also produce so that the Japan can take the primary uh, role in this. But uh, at the uh, detailed level, I cannot share more than this. So did, did I answer my question? Uh, answer your question? Ask, um, you know, the, the fighter aircraft is only one example, but uh, systems integration with each new generation of a platform gets almost exponentially more difficult so that, for example, JSF is a joint strike fighter and, um, you know, allies can't afford to do some of these alone anymore. I'm directing this first to General Brooks because, you know, in the U.S.-Korea alliance or in NATO, we have something closer to a joint requirements dialogue. It's not quite joint, uh, I think, in reality, but we, we, we think about requirements and how those affect procurement in a little more integrated way than I think we do in the U.S.-Japan alliance. And you know both alliances well. Is there room for us to think more jointly about requirements than we do now between the U.S. and Japan, recognizing we're not going to have a joint requirements um, you know, process like NATO and, and U.S.-RK necessarily? Right. So I don't think we'll go as far as that, at least not in the near term, for a joint requirements process. But as we are working through exercises, we can see that uh, first there would have to be an integration that connects the Japan Air Self-Defense Force and its aircraft, the full fleet, to the ground self-defense force. Uh, if Japan is to secure within its own archipelago, maneuver within its own archipelago to defend Japan or respond to a crisis within the archipelago, greater situational awareness is important. And many of these new generation uh, aircraft and weapon systems have these capabilities built in, but are they built to connect to another domain? And so we see that as a, a very important part of the design. And I'm confident Japan will take that on as they think through their own approaches to improving jointness and joint interoperability. But when you get to the alliance part, it's, uh, it, there's an added complexity, because that's hard enough on finding ways to move awareness from one domain into another in a way that both are operating with the best possible knowledge and understanding. It's even harder when you do it in an alliance. So what exactly can be shared? What protocols? What technical mechanisms make it possible for this awareness to be moved from one country's database to another uh, for immediate use without latency, which is the expectation in, uh, in modern warfare and in modern response operations? And, and I would say it applies to both of those, by the way. How did you do that? And, and how do you have that kind of a conversation? So this is what these relationships are about within an alliance. We have to have hard conversations about our ability to work together. And oddly enough, it, we have limitations even on long-standing alliances in NATO as well as in the uh, U.S.-Korea alliance, and that certainly applies in the U.S.-Japanese uh, alliance as well. We have to find ways to work through that. Please. 
えー、っと我々の戦闘機というのはですね当然のことながら例えば私は空爆長の時に。I was the air、uh, chief of staff. I decided to introduce F35. Oh, introduce the A type of F35. F35,、uh, compared to the history of these fighters, especially by the US Air Force, F14, 15, 18, A10 for air. They were third and fourth generation. And there was also a continuous.、Uh, it, so I do not think that that is a, a generation five, which is a continuation of the other. F 35 is a little different. So what we are going to be creating.、Uh, Is、uh, going to be something that is beyond the concept of、uh, fighters as we used to have. What would be required then? We do have a defense concept, and、uh, how we self defense forces will fight is indicated in the concept. We will fight on our own, and we will jointly.、Uh, Work、uh, that would involve interoperability. So, we need to be able to cover and overcome all of these uh, uh, concepts and needs in the fighter. So, whatever way you want to make this、uh, fighter, if we cannot、uh, jointly work or combine with US, or if we cannot、uh, work together with the air,、uh, sea, Etc., then that would not be sufficient. We need to have a fighter which would be able to enable all of those、uh, joint or、uh, capabilities. We have a couple of thanks to do before we wrap up. One, oh, sorry, go ahead.、Uh, quickly, yeah. Thank you, sir.、Um, I just wanted to take a very blunt approach in my question because, I mean, it's, I'm very thankful that there's dialogue between Japan and the US, but my question is I mean, China is still bullying countries in Southeast Asia. My, my question is about leveraging the insider role of Japan and taking a regional military leadership role in the region. Because, from what I know, is that I mean, China is still staunchly defending its like nine yard、um, meter defense, and no countries can come near to that nine yard、um, distance. And there was recently a meeting in the, in the, among the Southeast Asian nations, China、uh, stressing that, defending their, their、um, space. But the other thing, too, is that China has a very special、um, relationship with Japan, that there was an agreement. That before China attacks or gives a signal, they will give like a 24 to 48 hours alert to Japan. So, my question is and then Japan is also the second largest trade partner of China. So, my question is honestly, what is Japan? I mean, how can US leverage your insider role in the region? With these countries being bullied by China and develop you into a regional leader, military leader in that region, promoting the US interest, democracy, and Western values, and all that. 
Japan's doing a lot in the Philippines. I know. Uh, in what? that example, and you're thinking even more broadly. Does anyone want to uh, respond on how, from U.S. or Japanese perspective, Japan can play more of a leadership role in Southeast Asia in these challenges? I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, number one, a couple of a couple of things I need to correct. Um, the Chinese nine dash line claim encompasses the entire South China Sea and all countries operate in in there. China does China does not successfully exclude countries. The United States sends both civilian and military ships and aircraft through there. So does Japan. So do, so do others. Now many of them are challenged by uh, challenged by China, and of course China bullies Philippine fishermen and so on. But uh, but. There, I mean, that, that's an area as big as the Mediterranean. I mean, it's a huge area, and countries uh, do op operate there. But that's still international space, but China is just bullying. Yeah, but they're not winning. They're not winning. Uh, more and more other countries are putting more and more, uh, more, and more ships out there. But the, your basic point, I think, is correct, is that the way to, the way to handle this unilateral Chinese approach is with a combined coordinated effort of those, uh, those other countries which think that ought to be free and open international uh, space in accordance with the UN Commission on Law, Law and the Sea. And that, uh, and, and that uh, they need to work together in order to uh, assert, that, uh, assert that right. And the, um, the balance between uh, outside countries like the United States and Japan and the countries who live there like the Philippines and Malaysia and Vietnam is a, uh, is, is a delicate uh, is a delicate uh, uh, balance, but I think that both the United States and Japan are treading that balance uh, pretty well uh, by helping build capacity and resilience uh, within the countries concerned. Uh, areas like uh, increasing maritime domain awareness, which is helping countries understand what actually is going on, uh, increasing coast guard uh, and coast guard uh, capabilities there, and meanwhile sending their own uh, both. Navy ships and Coast Guard ships and aircraft into the uh, into the area. So I think uh, China is in, is encountering large pushback to their these claims, which you correctly cite, or that uh, <coughs> they claim the entire area within the uh, nine dash line, which encompasses the whole uh, South China Sea. But what I think we are sending, se seeing now, and this is a movie, not a snapshot, is a very strong pushback uh, with a lot of both individual activity by outside seafaring countries, uh, uh, support for the countries in the, uh, in the region, and then cooperation among them. So it's a, it's, it's a, uh, a movie that's going on, and uh, I, I think the ending of it will be favorable over, over time to the United States and Japan and the countries in the region who don't want to be bullied and coerced by China, but it, more work is required. So, um, yeah, please, come on, and then we'll, we'll conclude. But, uh, まずあの、日本が日本は海洋国家です。で、我々の最大の価値観は海洋の自由。ocean and the value for Japan is to protect the freedom of sea. And I believe that it is a value that is common with that of the United States. In the South China Sea and in Indian Ocean, 
we are not intending to take an initiative on our own. However, in the South and East China Sea and in the Indian Ocean, we will enhance the presence of our naval uh, capabilities in order to sort of uh, uh, deter China. This is something that we have not seen in the past. And I think we will continue to do that in the years to come. And uh, countries in ASEAN, such as Vietnam and India and Sri Lanka, uh, these will be the countries that we will have cooperation in the military sphere, and or we may have a joint exercise. And in order to enhance that, we hope to be able to confront the values of China. And ultimately, we hope that China will come close to uh, the values that we hold in this area. I have to end with a few thanks. I want to thank um, everyone on the panel, including for their service over 250 years. And that's just Admiral Mullen. <laughs> over 250 years of uh, combined uh, uh, combined service up here. Um, thank, the, um, thank the translators um, who have been doing an excellent job all day. Um, I want to thank um, our joint and combined task force of API and CSIS RAs and interns, and Kalti Yoichi and Nick Sanchenian and, and, and Yoichi Funabashi for, for really making this all happen. So thank you.